Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church of Savannah, Georgia. You're listening to the series, Bless the Lord, a study on the book of Psalms. For more information about CBC, please visit www.cbcofsavannah.org. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from God's Word. pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our Savior Jesus, and we need your grace. We we do want to hide ourselves in you. We want to find ourselves in you. We want to know you more. We want to worship you more. We want to be made more like you. God, we can't do these things on our own, so we ask that you would work in us by your grace. Lord, for the third time, I just remind you of how weak I am, how needy I am, how unqualified I am to preach your word, how just silly I think it is for me to be standing up here. And so I ask for your help, Lord. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you encourage your people? Would you build them up because you love them? We love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you're visiting this morning, I'm William, one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. We will be in Psalm 51, but not right away. So don't don't flip there too quick. Have you ever blown it? Have you ever just totally screwed up? Most of y'all know that before I came to CBC in 2011, uh, I caddied for my best buddy who plays on the PGA Tour, a guy named Webb Simpson. And in 2009, our rookie year, the very first playoff event, the Barclays up in New York City, biggest stage we had ever played on, all the best players in the world were there. And after two rounds, we found ourselves with a two-shot lead. And so we were so nervous going the next day. We knew we were going to be in the last group. We knew every shot was going to be on CBS, excited, nervous. Webb did a nice job through the first 10 holes, but then on the 11th hole, had a little hiccup, but then fought back, and by the time we we got to the 15th hole, we were floating right around the lead. On the 15th hole, though, they had moved the tee box way up. So he hits this beautiful drive down the middle, and to make a long story short, on the next shot, I end up giving him the wrong number. I told him he had about 190 yards to the hole, when in reality, he had about 170 yards. So he takes a six iron out, and he hits a beautiful shot going right at the pin, and we are looking at it, loving it. And then all of a sudden, it flies 15 yards over the green into grass this high. And he walks over the yardage mark, and he looks at it, and he looks at me, and he looks at it, and he looks at me. He says, buddy, I think you missed that one. (laughs) And my heart sank. My stomach was in knots. We were on the biggest stage that we had ever been on when it really mattered, and I had blown it. It was my fault. Have you ever blown it? What about in your relationship with God? Have you ever blown it in your relationship with God? And if we blow it in our relationship with God, what are we to do? What do we do when we've blown it in our relationship with God? 
what we're going to be looking at today through Psalm 51 as we continue this series called Bless the Lord. Before we get to Psalm 51, though, we got to understand context. So flip to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11, about a quarter of the way into your Bible. I'm going to give you a quick overview of that chapter. It was a spring day. All the men were off fighting, but David stayed back. And he went up to the roof of his house one afternoon, and he looked down, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And so he inquired about her. And his servants come back, and they say, hey, man, her name's Bathsheba. She's married to a guy named Uriah. But, but that didn't stop the lust in David's heart. And abusing his power as king, he called for her. And before long, she was pregnant. So David, wanting to cover up his sin, came up with a plan. But his first plan didn't work. So things got a little bit more extreme. And he instituted plan B. He called the leader of his army. And he said, hey, Joab, put... Put this guy, Uriah, on the front lines. And it didn't take long for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to die. And then David took Bathsheba to be his wife. And on the outside looking in, David's plan, as he intended it, was pretty successful. At first, nobody really seemed to know other than the people who were closest to David. Until we get to the last sentence in chapter 11. It says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knew what had happened. And he took personal offense to it. So he sent this guy, Nathan, to David, prophet. And they sit down and Nathan tells him a story about a rich guy and a poor guy. Rich guy with all these flocks and herds and a poor guy with this one little lamb, this lamb that he loved, his prized possession. And the rich guy had a buddy coming to town. But instead of eating his own lamb chops, he takes the lamb from the poor man and he kills it and he eats it. And when David hears this story, he's infuriated. He says in verse 5, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. David responded by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the background of Psalm 51. David had blown it. Today we're going to look at how he responded. And my prayer for us is that we would see what we should do when we have blown it in our relationship with God. So Psalm 51, you can flip there now. I'll read it in its entirety. And let me just say before we read the word, guys, what an honor to be able to sit under the word of God, a blessing that so many people on planet earth don't have. So the grace of God to us, Psalm 51. To the choir master, the superscript says, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David writes, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in, in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right, sacrifice, in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay, in the first two verses here, we see a summary of the entire psalm. David's purpose for writing. And here's what we find. He is humbly coming to God. He is begging for God's mercy, praying that God might forgive him for his sin. David is repenting. And he is modeling for us what we are to do when we've blown it in our relationship with God. So this morning, I want to highlight three steps that we're to take when we've blown it in our relationship with God. The first one is this. When we've blown it, the first thing we need to do is own our sin. When we've blown it in our relationship with God, the first thing that we need to do is own our sin. We see this idea very clearly in the first five verses. I'll read them again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, once David's sin was exposed by Nathan, he didn't deny it. He didn't blame shift. He didn't talk about an absentee dad or a mom who doesn't love him. He didn't talk about a wife who wasn't satisfying his needs. He didn't talk about tough circumstances. He owned his sin. He looked at his sin soberly. He did not try to justify it. And his only conclusion was, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice in the first five verses, we see this word my five different times. And every time the word my is used, it's followed by transgressions, iniquities, sin. David was owning his sin. He knew that he'd blown it. He confessed that what he'd done was his fault, no one else's. This is the first step in repentance for us. Okay, but, but also notice that he didn't stop in verse 3 with just admitting that he'd blown it. And in verse 4, he tells us why sin is such a hideous offense. Here's what he says, against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Okay, in David's mind, the reason why sin was such a lofty, 
horrific offense against God, sorry, such a lofty, horrific offense was because the sin is against God. Sin was a big deal to David primarily because he had offended a personal, holy God. Now, this is kind of a strange concept in our culture, why, where we, I guess, live by these virtues of tolerance and acceptance, and everything's okay as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. But, but David's not saying that. David's saying, hey, worse than breaking up a marriage, worse than even killing a man, is the fact that I have offended, I have sinned against the one true God, I have done evil in his sight. Sin is so lofty because it is against God. Now, this doesn't mean we can't sin against people. The Bible even says we can sin against ourselves. But sin is wicked primarily because God is the one being offended. I remember one day, my junior year of college, after I had just blown it. And I was feeling filthy, feeling guilty. I was feeling uneasy on the inside. And so I went for a walk, just feeling like crud. And, and I remember God just impressing on my heart, no audible voice, but felt like God was just saying to me, William, do you hate sin because you don't like what it does to you? Or do you hate sin because it's sin against me? You see, up until that point, I'd only hated sin because I didn't like the consequences of sin. Didn't like how it made me feel. Sadly, it's, it's like that still. But sin is primarily wrong because it is against God. How about you? How do you, how do you feel about sin? You hate sin? If so, why? Do you hate sin because it makes you feel bad? Do you hate sin because it, it might jeopardize a relationship or damage your reputation? See, friends, if we don't hate sin because we have offended God, it's not Christian repentance. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Oh, dear hearers, do ask yourself whether you have sorrowed for sin because it is sin against God. For any hypocrite is sorry for sin which injures himself or which may damage his reputation among men. But the essential thing is to be sorry because the evil is a wrong done to God. David's a great model for us in this. Even though he blew it big time, he owned that his sin was sin against God. He has done evil in the sight of his maker. He had offended the God who had only ever done good to him. David owned this. But notice that he didn't just own the height of his sin, the seriousness of it. He also owned the depth of his sin. Verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. So here's what David is not saying here. He's not saying that his parents had some sort of sinful relation going on and relationship going on, and he, his birth was the result of that. He's not saying that. He's not saying that it was, it's sinful for his mother to have had him. What he's saying is that when David looks at his behavior, when he looks at what he's done, and he looks back at the course of his entire life, he can say that the problem is not just in his actions. The problem is in his nature. See, he's, not, he's saying he's not a sinner because he sinned. 
Rather, he sinned because he is a sinner. His sinful actions float out of the sinfulness of his nature. So he owned the height of his sin. He owned the depth of his sin. And friends, this is the first step that we need to take when we've blown our relationship with God. We've got to own our sin. Now let me hit pause real quick. Some of y'all are probably thinking one of two things. First, you may be thinking this. William, I appreciate what you said about Psalm 51. But, uh, man, I've, I've never sinned nearly as bad as David did. I mean... Have I really done what is evil in God's sight? I hadn't, I hadn't murdered anybody. I hadn't committed adultery. And here's what I would say to you, my friend. The problems that David had are the same problems that we have. And the idea is this. No matter how small our sin might be, sin is sin because it is offending a holy God. So whether it's murder or malice, whether it's adultery or arrogance, whether we're having a huge lapse of judgment like David did, or whether you're judging somebody on Facebook, sin is hideous because it is against God. And when we rebel against the high king of heaven, the only right response for him is judgment, like we see at the end of verse 4. Of course he's justified in his words. Of course he's blameless in our judgment. So, so even though we haven't done things nearly as bad as David, we are equally guilty to David. But, but like David, we've got to know that our sin proceeds from our sinful nature. So it's not just our sinful actions that are a problem. For us, friends, it is that we've been born into a sinful race. It's from the time that we were little. Selfishness comes very, very naturally to us. By our birth, we are rebels against God. So, so we can't dismiss the sin in our own lives, no matter how small we think it might be. That may be one camp. The other camp is over here. And you're probably thinking, Cain, I got a lot of problems, but owning my sin ain't one of them. There are some people in this room who are all too familiar with their sin. There are some of you guys who just carry around the heavy weight of guilt and shame everywhere you go. And whether it was something that happened one time or whether it's a secret life that you continue to live, it could be addiction, it could be a life that you ended when you were in college. It could be just being an absentee dad for year after year after year. Some of you guys are all too familiar with your sin, all too familiar with your guilt. And here's what I would say to you, my friend. Number one, so glad you're here. Number two, hope is just a couple steps away, just like it was for David. Let's see where he goes in verses 6 through 12. He writes, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Okay, let me hit pause real quick. Here's what God is wanting all along. God is wanting an honest heart that worships him. This is where he goes later in the Psalm 2 in verses 16 and 17. A broken and contrite heart. God from the get-go is concerned with the heart. God is concerned with our hearts. He wants our hearts to worship him, to love him with all of them. And sin often starts, my friend, in the heart. With a failure to love God, a failure to delight in God. So David's trying to get back to that place. Let's see how he goes about it. Verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the second step for us when we blow it in our relationship with God. We need to ask God for restoration. Second thing we need to do is to ask God for restoration. After David owned his sin, he's now pleading with God to restore him. And there's kind of two sides to this restoration coin. First, in verses 7 through 9, is forgiveness. The second, in verses 10 through 12, is this idea of renewal. So let's take them one at a time, this idea of forgiveness first. Look at the language in 7 through 9. David says, purge me, wash me, blot out. See, he understood that because sin was such a haughty offense against God, it had made him filthy. And he needed to be made clean. And that's what he's getting at in verse 7 when he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What he's doing here is he's referencing the Old Testament law. The law regarding lepers, how lepers were to be cleansed. And a leopard at that time was viewed as under the judgment of God. Unclean, couldn't even come near people. And, and David's saying, my sin against God has made me as unclean and as worthy of judgment as a leper. But if God would purge me, I could be clean. If God would wash me, I'll be as white as snow, which is a powerful image when you consider the dry, dusty hills of Israel, snow-capped peaks, pure, stainless. God, if you would wash me, I would be clean. See, even though David's sin was so wicked and so gross, he had confidence in God, that God had the power to make him completely clean. You have that confidence this morning? You think God can make you completely clean? You think he can wash you completely? I bet some of you doubt. Nah, man, I'm, I'm too far gone. Been in this lifestyle too long, man. No, if you just knew what I had done, man, I just, I don't know if God could wash me. David was entrusted with leading the people of God. He committed adultery and then he murdered one of his own men. If God could forgive David, my friend, God can forgive you. So David was asking for forgiveness, but he's also, also asking for renewal. Verses 10 through 12. Notice the language here. He says, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's what's going on here. When David uses this word create, he's asking for God to do what only God can do. He's asking for a miracle. So he's saying, God, make my heart new again invigorate my, my spirit, God. Bring back delight. Bring back joy. Remember how it was at first? Bring that back to me, God. Renew me. I can't do this on my own. I need you to do it. Have you ever been there? Just needing God to renew you? Dry, weak, having failed, needing God to put a new spirit in you? 
That's what David was asking for. And he was asking because he knew that God could do it. Now, before we move on, I think it's important for us to note the basis on which God's asking for these, or David's asking for these things. Okay, because he's asking for this restoration. But for us, if you're anything like me, and I'm guessing you probably are in some ways, um, when we do something wrong, when we've offended somebody and we want that offense to be overlooked, we usually try to make up for it. So we either point to something we've already done or we point to something that we will do to make it better. For example, Wednesday night, I usually get home by 5.15 to help, help with the girls for dinner time. And this Wednesday, I was here late and I was not going to be on time. So I call my, my wife and I say, hey, baby, how you doing? Hey, why don't, can I run by the store for you? You need anything? And she said, uh, no, where are you? I said, oh, I'm on my way. But, but I, I tried even just the offering to go to the store to make up for knowing I was going to be late. Silly, pathetic, all of the above, sinful. But we also carry this silly idea into our relationship with God, don't we? God, if you'll just overlook this, I'll be different. If you'll just brush this thing over here under the rug, or if you'll fix these consequences, God, I'll, man, I'll start reading my Bible, I'll start coming to church. Heck, I might even tithe. Yeah. Thank you. That's more laughter than I got in the first two services. <laughs> Nobody ever laughs at my jokes. It's pathetic. So, so we point to something that we might do in order to validate that God would look over our fence. Or we point back to something that we've done. You ever done this? God, it, you, I know you'll forgive me. I mean, I'm a good guy. Think about, you know, how, how generous I've been. I'm nice. I'm, I'm easily the nicest guy at work. And I've got, got Brooks Brothers shirts. Couldn't forget that. It's not funny either. <laughs> but friends, seriously, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. You're in the right place. We were once in your chair. And if you're thinking, though, that one day you could stand before God and you could plead good works or a good record or that, man, you're better than most people, that won't work before a holy God. You've already blown it way too much. We, we all have. In no way can we plead our own performance before a holy God who demands perfection. But on the, on the flip side of the coin, if you're here and you're a Christian, and you, you've fallen, and you think that God is going to restore you into fellowship with him because of your performance, because you start doing better, trying harder, that's equally false. Not only can we not gain acceptance with God by our performance, we cannot keep it. Notice the basis for David's request. Okay, he doesn't cite good things that he's done in order for God to overlook his offenses. He doesn't talk about the time he defeated Goliath. He doesn't talk about the time he brought the ark back to Israel. And he doesn't talk about something he'll do in the future, about building a temple where God will be praised. No, notice the terms on which he comes to God, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David was banking completely on the steadfast love and mercy of God. He was hoping in nothing else. 
And friends, the same is true for us who need to be restored to God. Day after day after day, we need to experience this restoration. We cannot come to him based on our own performance. We must come to him based on his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. We come on his terms or we do not come at all. Now, let me hit pause in sermon mode and quickly move kind of into teaching mode. Okay, Verse 11 has been source of great conflict. And what will happen is some folks will say, man, this is evidence that God will take the Holy Spirit from the believer, that you could lose your salvation in effect. And I don't think that's what, that, what this is talking about here. What I think this is actually talking about is specifically to David as king. And we get this idea when we look at Saul in 1 Samuel. Saul was the first king of Israel. And after he had rejected God, here's what the text says. 1 Samuel 16, 14. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So God had given Saul his spirit to rule his people specifically for a specific time. When Saul rejected God, God removed his blessing over Saul as king. And what David is praying here is, God, don't do that to me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me as I lead these people. I need your spirit to guide me. I need you to govern me as I govern them. As we look at the whole of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, the New Testament's clear that those of us who have been born of God can't be unborn of God. So we have, we have great reassurance that we, we are new, always kept by the Spirit of God. But here's what we do know from experience. When we sin against God, even as we do have His Spirit, our fellowship with God can be broken. It can be fractured. And when that happens, our prayer needs to be for restoration. It's what David's praying for. It's what we need to pray for. Now, let me say this, though. We don't just need to ask for restoration. We need to expect restoration. As we consider the rest of the psalm, you will see David's expectation of God's restoration of him oozing through the rest of these verses. Um, and before we get there, I want you to consider how, how awesome and maybe not surprising, but how much faith that took on David's part. See, David was under a different covenant than we are. He was under a different agreement with God than we are. In the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Law, here's the basic gist. If, if the people of God honored God, obeyed God, thanked God, then God would bless them. But if they dishonored him, disobeyed him, there would be major consequences. But God did say, but if you'll return to me with your whole heart, right, if you offer sacrifices to me to atone for your sins, then I'll restore you to fellowship. David was hoping in this. He was trusting that, man, what God says is true. I'm going to come back with a broken, contrite heart. I'm going to offer these sacrifices, and, and I hope that he will have me back. And maybe you're wondering this morning, How could he know? Like, could David really know that God would forgive him? Could David really know that God was going to restore him? And man, was he even a special case? I mean, he's the king of Israel. What about us? Can we know that God will restore us? Can we know that he'll forgive us and renew us if we return to him? And friends, here's what I would say. More than David can know, we can know. And let me tell you why. David was under this 
old agreement with God where when he sinned, he would bring sacrifices to God. Somebody would actually do it on his behalf in order for him to atone for his sins. We're not under that agreement. We're under a new covenant. A covenant not where we provide our own sacrifices, but a covenant where God has provided the sacrifice for us. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took this cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's my blood that is shed for you. And if that was confusing to the disciples on Thursday night, on the very next day, he made clear what he meant. When he was nailed to a Roman cross and his body was broken and his blood was poured out. What Jesus of Nazareth, the historical God-man was doing, was offering his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. God put forth the sacrifice that we might be made right with him. Now, how, how can we know that God accepted that sacrifice? I'm glad you asked. A couple days later, Jesus came out of the grave, validating everything that he had accomplished on the previous Friday. God proclaiming to the world, the sacrifice is accepted. All who will come to me for restoration may come. They may freely come on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of what they do. You see, friend, if you're here this morning, no matter how bad your sin has been, no matter how long you have been stranded in that sin, believer, no matter, no matter how far you have run from God, because of what Jesus has done, on the basis of what Jesus has done, you can approach Almighty God and be restored into fellowship with him. Don't be one of these people who says, no, 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 my sin's too bad. I don't know if God could overlook this. Friend, that is stupidity and that is arrogance. There is more grace in God than there is sin in you. Don't devalue the sacrifice of the holy God. Don't doubt the infinite power of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. We can come to God freely through the blood of Christ. Just like David, the murderer and adulterer could. Just like Paul, the terrorist who is targeting God's people could. So can you. Not based on your performance, but based on his. This is why John can say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He proved it at the cross. He is just. At the cross, justice was paid. Now he can freely forgive all who come to him. Friend, we can be absolutely sure that there is restoration for us when we have blown it in our relationship with God. Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. We can confidently come back to God, no matter how bad it's been. This leads us to step three. What do we do when this restoration comes? How do we respond? Step three, we rejoice. We 
rejoice. This is where David's heading in verse 13 through 17. It says, Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me, O God, from blood guiltiness. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you want delight and sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So like we saw earlier, God's concerned with the heart. And he's not saying, I don't want you to keep these sacrifices anymore. He's saying, if you're going to offer these sacrifices, you better do it with the right heart. You better do it with a broken and contrite heart over sin and then a heart that rejoices when it's restored. And that's exactly what David intended to do, to rejoice in God before other people and before God himself. I started by telling you guys about a time, one of many, when I blew it. And you may be wondering how that ended up. So Webb has hit the shot 15 yards over the green. He walked ahead. I am now kicking myself all 170 yards to the green, not 190 yards. And when he gets up to the green, I don't know what to expect. Justice would have said, fire me, which is probably what a lot of pros would have done. But Webb turns around, and he comes back to me, and he sticks out his fist. He says, buddy, I've been making mistakes all day. I'll get it up and down. And he gave me a fist bump. And then he steps back into this grass up to his knees, and he hits a big high flop shot that lands about two feet from the hole, and he makes a putt for par. And you know what I did? I was pumped. <laughs> I rejoiced, man. I was telling other people what he did. I was thanking him. Right? This was the appropriate response for the way that he had saved my tail. He had bailed me out. And the appropriate response was to rejoice. But friend, how much more has Jesus done for us? Consider the infinite lengths that Jesus has gone through for you to deal with your sin. He has saved us from judgment. He has given us his spirit. He has restored us and renewed us and sustained us and refreshed us over and over and over again. Shouldn't we rejoice in him? And shouldn't we rejoice in him by telling people? I mean, this is what David had in mind in verse 13. Right? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. See, because David understood the grace of God, he had to tell other people. When we understand the grace of God, we must tell other people. And look at how this has borne fruit. I mean, David is saying, I will teach transgressors your ways, sinners will return to you. He writes this song. They put it in the Bible, and 3,000 years later, consider the effect of that. He has been teaching transgressors and sinners to return to God for 3,000 years, and countless have likely done that through this psalm alone. So we rejoice in God by telling others about him, but we also rejoice in God just by worshiping him. And that's the idea that we see in verses 14 and 15. A couple of things to highlight. David says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness when this restoration comes. And he says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Friends, because God has restored us, we should worship him. And not, not just give him lip service, guys. We ought to be people who worship God from the heart. Shouldn't we? People who are excited about God, 
People who celebrate his grace, people who care about it, who can't keep it in. This is the effect of the gospel. This is what it is to do in us when we realize the great depths from which we have been saved. When we realize the extravagant, unending love of God that has been poured out on us and that continues to be poured out in our hearts time and time again by the Holy Spirit. So our response is to rejoice in God. It's what David or God wanted for David. It's what God wanted from all Israel, as we see in verses 18 and 19. It's what he wants for us. So what do we do when we've blown it in our relationship with God? The first thing we do is we own our sin. We don't blame shift. We don't make excuses. We own our sin. We confess our sin to God. Next, we ask God for restoration. We ask him that he might forgive us. We ask him that he might renew us. And we expect that he will answer this prayer based on the perfect, full, furious, infinite work of Jesus Christ. And then last, when restoration comes, we rejoice. Rejoice by telling people. We rejoice by worshiping him. We're going to do that now by celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, for the third week in a row. And as the supper is passed out, here's what I would encourage you guys to think about. Don't move too quickly into taking it. First, think about your sin. Take some time to own your sin, to look at the broken piece of bread and the cup that represents the blood shed and think my sin is such a serious offense against God that God, God's own son had to die for it. Own the weight of your sin first. But then once you have owned the weight of your sin, friend, quickly move to God's grace. Quickly move to the restoration that is freely offered, that is unapologetically offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. When you're done, stand with us and we'll rejoice together. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you. We worship you from the heart as, as best we can. And Lord, where our hearts fail to worship you, we ask that you would cause them to worship you. We worship you because you are the holy creator of all things and you deserve our worship just by your position but we also worship you, God, because you are the Savior. You are the one who has come to our rescue. You are the one who has redeemed us and who continues to restore us over and over and over again. Thank you that no matter how bad we've blown it, we can come back to you because of what Jesus has done. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who are doubting the reality of your forgiveness, that you would slay those doubts and that you would show them that you wait for them with open arms because of the sacrifice of Christ. Pray for all who need your restoration this morning that we'd find it in Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen.